Welcome once more to A Year With, the podcast where we will learn more about great ideas from our common history, good ideas, and bad ones by reading together for a whole year. For 2022, we're exploring the Harvard Classics, world literature anthology that was published beginning in 1909. And for new listeners, that first, in that collection of books, the first volume is a one-year suggested reading plan. And I'm following that plan every week, and I would recommend that you return to the introductory episode if you're new so you can get a sense of what I'm seeking to do here. On this episode, we're now on the seventh week, February 12th through February 18th. And this week we've read The Gettysburg Address, A Piece of Italian Renaissance Adventure from the sculptor Cellini, Pascal's Discourse on the Passion of Love, Happy Valentine's Day, Even More Love from Dryden. We're back to Darwin again, this time with a more scientific text. Uh, Moliere's Tartuffe and the treaty that finally ended our little American tiff with Great Britain. Let's get going. On February 12th, I want to say Abraham Lincoln is the best president. This is a debate that I've been having lately with my nine-year-old son. Uh, For some reason, he has declared John F. Kennedy to be the best president. Though, of course, because he's nine, he can't tell you why, other than he says that John F. Kennedy is a good speaker. And I'm like, well, Lincoln was better. Um, I believe as my son grows up, I'll be able to make my case with a little bit more force. Lincoln was a remarkably thoughtful writer and orator. Um, Often there is this strong trade-off in public life between participation in the big noisy mess of politics and then high quality thought. But Lincoln was often able to accomplish both um, under some of the greatest personal and professional pressures that a human can experience. Our selections for the 12th of February are provided in honor of uh, Lincoln's birthday, which is celebrated on that day. Uh, My state, Illinois, celebrates this day, and I'm glad to be off work for it. The selections provided here are a good basic sampling uh, of a kickoff of Lincoln. We have the Gettysburg Address, um, an 1863 draft of a proclamation of amnesty for Confederates, and a poignant letter to a Mrs. Bixby who lost five sons on the battlefield in the Civil War. The Gettysburg Address is one of the most well-known speeches in American history, and it's a case study in KISS. Keep it simple, stupid. This speech was delivered in a time when long speeches were a form of diversion or entertainment. Uh, You would see a speech in the same way that one would attend a a concert or a movie today. This speech, though, was very short. It didn't shake the foundations of the world immediately at the time. But it it would come to be a very important and concise statement of what we stood for as a nation, uh, almost like a a mission statement of the United States. Uh, And when we start talking about the United States is, instead of the United States are, a more unified nation. This was delivered in the context of dedicating a cemetery at the site of a bloody battleground uh, in 1863, in the middle of the doldrums of the war, when people couldn't really see the end of it. He strove to connect the soldier's sacrifice with the mission of our nation um, that, quote, this nation under God shall have a new birth of freedom and that government of the people, by the people, for the people shall not perish from the earth. The second selection here is a draft of Lincoln's proclamation of amnesty written in 1863. Um, it allows us to project what would have happened if Lincoln had not been assassinated. This was a generous amnesty for former Confederate rebels. Um, It required a loyalty oath, and it 
restored an independent non-military government in the southern states once a number of people uh, comprising 10% of those who had cast ballots in the 1860 presidential election had taken it. I mean, a relatively small percentage of people. Um, and the amnesty excluded certain high Confederate officials and uh, military leaders. This was a very conciliatory and non-punitive gesture. Um, and one wonders what would have happened if this happened instead of the mess that Reconstruction became under, for instance, uh, Lincoln's successor, Andrew Johnson. The third selection is worth reading in its entirety. It's a message of consolation to Lydia Parker Bixby of Boston, who was said to have lost five sons in the war. Executive Mansion, Washington, November 21st, 1864. Mrs. Bixby, Boston, Massachusetts. Dear Madam, I have been shown in the files of the War Department a statement of the Adjutant General of Massachusetts that you are the mother of five sons who have died gloriously on the field of battle. I feel how weak and fruitless must be any words of mine which should attempt to beguile you from the grief of a loss so overwhelming. But I cannot refrain from tendering to you the consolation that may be found in the thanks of the Republic they died to save. I pray that our Heavenly Father may assuage the anguish of your bereavement and leave you only the cherished memory of the loved and lost and the solemn pride that must be yours to have laid so costly a sacrifice upon the altar of freedom. Yours very sincerely and respectfully, Abraham Lincoln. On February 13th, today we have a selection from the autobiography of uh, Benvenuto Cellini, Dr. Elliot's blurb here is that, quote, statecraft and religion, black magic and assassination were naively mingled together in men's lives. Uh, and the text we're given a selection from today, Benvenuto Cellini's autobiography provides a glimpse into the spectacular world of the Italian Renaissance. Cellini was a 16th century Italian sculptor and goldsmith who created commissioned works for popes and other nobles. Um, but he also wrote an autobiography. This autobiography, based on the snippet we're provided, is very fresh-feeling and fast-paced. Um, however, we get a sense of Cellini as insecure and profoundly self-promoting. Uh, he is constantly crediting himself with things that are perhaps inflated or up for dispute. It makes for a great read, but you take the specific claims with a massive grain of salt. This episode is from the 1527 sack of Rome by the troops of Charles V, who was the Holy Roman Emperor. So in the fighting, Cellini uh, promoted his own bravery and greatness, noting that he's even better at war than his own art of sculpture and goldsmithing. As he said, I was perhaps more inclined by nature to the profession of arms than to the one I had adopted. He takes credit, for instance, for the killing of the opposing commander, Charles of Bourbon, though no one really knows who killed him. He also refers offhandedly to issues about which he supposedly has no opinion or stake in and fakes humility in bringing them up, but draws attention to them by bringing them up. So, for instance, he notes, Aid from the Duke of Urbino never came, on which, as it's not my business, I'll make no further comment. Uh, well, this that's a comment, isn't it? Um, Cellini comes off as excitable, fun, thin-skinned, flawed, but still a fascinating character in retrospect. Um, this selection really brings out the genuinely human perspective in the Italian Renaissance. For the 14th, Happy Valentine's Day, we return to Blaise Pascal, the influential 17th century French philosopher, theologian, and mathematician, who you may know through the famous Pascal's Wager, in which he presents in his pensées or thoughts. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read it just because this is 
one thing from Pascal that you need to be familiar with, and I think it's very interesting to discuss. As he says, if there is a God, he is infinitely incomprehensible since having neither parts nor limits, he has no affinity to us. We are then incapable of knowing either what he is or if he is. God is or he is not. But to which side shall we incline? Reason can decide nothing here. There is infinite chaos that separated us. A game is being played at the extremity of this infinite distance where the heads or tails will turn up. Well, will you wager? According to reason, you can do neither the one thing nor the other. According to reason, you can defend neither of the propositions, but you must wager. It is not optional. You are embarked. Which will you choose then? Let us see. Since you must choose, let us see which interests you least. You have two things to lose, the true and the good, and two things to stake, your reason and will, your knowledge and your happiness, and your nature has two things to shun, error and misery. Your reason is no more shocked in choosing one rather than the other, since you must of necessity choose. This is one point settled. But your happiness? Let us weigh the gain and loss in wagering that God is. Let us estimate these two chances. If you gain, you gain all. If you lose, you lose nothing. Wager then, without hesitation, that he is. The upshot here is that when you wager about the infinite, the belief or the trust side of the wager will always lean in the direction of the infinite. Infinity screws up merely mathematical calculations of probability. Anyway, that's not what we're reading today. Uh, What we're actually reading today is a discourse on the passion of love selected for St. Valentine's Day. And this is my impression. It's, I mean, it's profound, but it's a little hard to follow. It's kind of a collection of somewhat connected thoughts on the general topic of love, but it does not necessarily have an overarching point. Um, We learn in general that Uh, The chief human passions are love and ambition. They're often opposed to one another. Passions often abate with age. Uh, In a great soul, everything is great. And so the more mind we have, the greater the passions are. Um, Love gives the most pleasure when it's advanced by kind of both parts of our mind, by the geometrical and imaginative mind. We have an inborn attraction to beauty, which is surprisingly variant for something inborn. Um, As he says, quote, Fashion, even, and country often regulate what is called beauty. I wonder what Edmund Burke, who, if you remember, promoted standards of better and worse in terms of taste. I wonder what he would think about this. Um, We learn that man is born for pleasure, and this truth is so obvious that it needs no proof. Um, I think there are people who would dispute this. So, for instance, if you're familiar with the psychiatrist and Holocaust survivor Viktor Frankl's work on logotherapy, there is an argument that man is born for meaning, and pleasure is often indifferent to that end. Um, but in, in Pascal, we don't know if this uh, pleasure orientation is a good thing. Um, he says, a true or false pleasure can equally fill the mind. For what matters it that this pleasure is false if we're persuaded that it's true? Uh, returning to the division between love and ambition, one is outwardly turned and the other is inwardly turned. So we hear here, man by himself is something imperfect and he must find a second in order to be happy. And then When we love a woman of unequal condition, ambition may accompany the beginning of the love, but in a little time, the latter becomes master. So love emphasizes the other and ambition elevates the self. And he says also love and reason are but the same thing. And we've made a mistake in opposing them. I don't really know that he gives a good reason for that statement other than asserting it. Um, And then one other interesting aside, Pascal doesn't begin counting, quote, the life of man 
until around the age of 20, which he calls the time of the birth of reason. Um, That makes life even shorter than it seems to be. On February 15th, we have uh, another piece of love, John Dryden's All for Love. Uh, John Dryden was a Restoration-era English playwright. So why does the era matter here? The Restoration was the time period of a revival of a certain expression of English culture after the Interregnum period. So England had been temporarily ruined by a... uh, There's a little slip there. Um, Temporarily ruled by a Puritan-oriented republic um, from 1649 to 1660. Uh, During that period, the land was ruled by fun suckers who did things like close the theaters and cancel Christmas. Um... When King Charles II was restored to the throne and, you know, fun and levity came back, this also meant a resurgence of the theater. However, the theater, the, the, the plays had a more flippant comic edge to them. It's, it's like the country had been through so much. Um, and so there was an amorality to the moors that are described in the plays. Um, and there was also a nostalgic need to bring back what was lost. Uh, the play that we're given today, Dryden's All for Love, is in that vein. It's a retelling of Shakespeare's Antony and Cleopatra. Basic background. Antony was part of the Second Triumvirate, uh, or three men, who ruled in Rome after the assassination of Julius Caesar. Cleopatra was the queen of Egypt. Antony was kind of bewitched, so to speak, by Cleopatra. Octavius, one of the other three rulers found Antony's passion to be a distraction from Antony's duties to his country. And so Octavius offered his sister Octavia to Antony in marriage. The act that we're given here, the first part of Act 3, occurs after Cleopatra has learned of Antony's relationship with Octavia. And so Cleopatra has been trying to make the case for her and Antony's relationship. Antony is pining for Cleopatra, and we see Antony as a flawed character who's distracted from his duties. Um, as Antony's general and companion, uh, Ventidius notes, his virtues lie so mingled with his crimes as would confound the God's choice to punish one and not reward the other. We end with a confrontation between Octavia, who's Antony's wife, and Cleopatra. Um, we're in the middle of a clear path to ruin. If you're familiar with the story, you know this leads to the tragic suicide of both Antony and Cleopatra. For the 16th, we're back to Charles Darwin, but no longer on the Beagle. We're trading the macro-level adventure of sailing on the opposite side of the world to a micro-level exploration of the tiny world of ants. This time, we're in Darwin's On the Origin of Species, his 1859 text that set forth the basic foundations of evolutionary biology, whereby species can change over time through the process of natural selection, where biological traits are discarded or preserved based on how effective they are at promoting reproduction. Uh, This work, as we can read here, was not intended for a limited scientific audience, but can be easily read by a, a, a layman to science. This section describes the slave making instinct among certain ants, um, where some ants have such a strong division of labor amongst themselves that without the slave ants, the master ants can't even feed themselves. Um, He proposes some mechanism through which this may happen. One thought is that ants may have once carried off the pupae of other species, and he observes some ants who do not have this instinct to such a strong degree. The remarkable thing here in this text is the detail of fine observation. There's a bit of 
anthropomorphizing or attributing human-like traits to the ants to drive the narrative, um, and how everyday and, and normal that such a world-changing scientific theory can seem. Um, part of the success of Darwin's theory, to me, is found in his skill as a communicator. On February 17th, we have a selection from the beginning of Moliere's Tartuffe. Uh, I read Tartuffe in a world literature course as an undergraduate, and I loved it, in part because Tartuffe charges headlong into a satire of religious hypocrisy. The character Tartuffe in this play is a sort of confidence man, con man, who uses religion to build trust, even though he actually lacks virtues. Uh, this first act is set in the Paris home of Orgon, a protagonist of this story who is duped by Tartuffe. We meet Elmire, Orgon's wife, and Madame Purnell, Orgon's mother. Madame Purnell is very thin-skinned, and, and she can't seem to keep her mouth shut long enough to take advice from anyone, and she is also duped by Tartuffe. Damis, Orgon's son, is skeptical, calling Tartuffe a bigot criticaster, and the maid Doreen, another wise but servile character being common in drama, carries the same skepticism, calling him, calling Tartuffe a vagabond and a zealous carper. In this first scene, we see enough to know the basic division between the members of the household, between skepticism and credulity. On February 18th, finally, back to important legal documents in the history of the United States. We have the Treaty with Great Britain, that brought the War of 1812 to a close. In some ways, this treaty actually settled the various states of conflict that existed from the start of the American Revolution. The War of 1812 has many debatable causes, including Britain's attempt to check the expansion of the U.S., the U.S.'s possible designs on Canada, and so on. But this treaty, a simple treaty that basically settled the territorial claims to the state that existed before the war, so almost in some ways makes the war a waste of time, um, with the exception of setting up a couple of mediation commissions to settle some outstanding minor disputes. It does all that, but one of the most interesting sections to me is in Article 10, where it reads, quote, Whereas the traffic in slaves is irreconcilable with the principles of humanity and justice, and whereas both His Majesty and the United States are desirous of continuing their efforts to promote its entire abolition, it is hereby agreed that both the contracting parties shall use their best endeavors to accomplish so desirable an object. This, of course, uh, only refers to the traffic in slaves and not the institution of slavery itself, but it's remarkable that both nations committed just so unreservedly to this value. That's where we'll wrap up for the week. If you have any comments or questions or suggestions, email me at zach.garrett at outlook.com, Z-A-C-H dot G-A-R-R-E-T-T at outlook.com. We'll go far east starting off next week with a Buddhist text, and we'll spend some more time with Voltaire and some time with Cardinal Newman. We'll see you then. <laughs>